So I'm just this mic today up. Yeah. Cool. Okay, we're speeding. All right, so I'm gonna do a soft open and I'll introduce you and we'll just get to talking, okay? Okay. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we are rolling into another episode of The Candace Owens Show. It has become more and more apparent to me that people in the West know very little about anything that goes on in the East. Particularly Americans seem to know very little about what goes on in the world outside of the United States. Uh, we saw this best demonstrated when uh, General Soleimani of Iran was uh, slaughtered in a military operation, and many people in the West felt a lot of sympathy for the state of Iran, uh, the same people that stand on the platform of women's rights. Um, it was an interesting thing, and it made me want to have an episode to further discuss a lot of the dynamics that are going on, particularly in the Middle East. Um, here today I have president of the American Islamic Forum of Democracy and the co-founder of Muslim reform movement, Zudi Jasser. Welcome to The Candace Owens Show. It's great to be with you, Candace. All uh, right. I'm going to start from fan. the beginning. Yeah. Okay. So Zudi and I met, crazy set of circumstances, but he and I met on a fishing trip in British Columbia. Um, and it was a select group of people. We were out there fishing and we got to talk about a lot of the work that he was doing, uh, particularly on the Muslim reform movement. And I thought that you are doing incredible work. And I want to make sure that we give a platform to all the stuff that you're doing, really your life's work. Um, and it starts with, I'll tee you up here, um, your parents. Your parents were Syrian refugees in the 60s. Is that correct? Yeah, my family uh, escaped Syria in the mid-60s. The Ba'athists, which is sort of the Nazi party of uh, Syria, the, the Arabists, if you will, took over in 1963. My grandfather, uh, Zudi Jasser, was a businessman and an editor, owner of a major newspaper in Syria. And after the French pulled out in 1948, Syria had 20 different coups. Initially, they tried to have democracy, parliamentary government, and uh, it just didn't work because they had really no institutions, no civil society, and uh, it fell apart because the people didn't have a Second Amendment, didn't have a First Amendment, and ultimately the Assad's, Assad's party, the Ba'athists took over in 63, Assad took over in 70, the father did, and Syria has been basically the North Korea of the Middle East since then. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I'm going I'm to stop you there because, you know, if I uh, was a, a leftist today, I would say it was right for, for France to leave. It was right for France to pull out because those are the evil white man colonizers. But you're saying that your parents were able to live better when the evil white man colonizers uh, were in Syria. Is that what you're telling me? Well, it's all relative. I mean, if you look at the educational system in Syria, it's French. And my father was an Anglophile, did his undergrad work in London. And ultimately, uh, when they decided that they could not democratize Syria, he ultimately wanted to come to America. He didn't choose a European country, by the way, because the concept of America being an idea, embracing immigrants, giving individuals the right to freedom and liberty, and everybody having an American dream was something he realized, even in Europe, they didn't have. But having said that, um, the, the colonial era did bring some ideas of freedom and liberty, but also stagnated some things. They weren't able to grab hold of their own societies, if you will, and it sort of entrenched some of the inability to reform, which the Ottomans, I think, destroyed for 400 years before that. Mm. So we're seeing right now play out in the Middle East a lot of the pathologies of hundreds of years of historical stagnation. Colonial era maybe helped some of that modernize, but uh, uh, to this day, the 2011, 
and the revolutions that happened with the Arab awakening mm. were the first sign. I wish my grandfather and father were alive to see what happened in the last uh, uh, eight years. Yes, Syria has been savaged by a revolution and, and uh, half the population is displaced. Uh, but I have to tell you that uh, there's two things I've learned. One is that they can live to be free. They can fight against the governments that take away their rights to individuality and freedom. But two is the only country that can do the work that we need done for reform and against tyranny is in America. Mm -hmm. So yes, there might only be 4 million Muslims in America and the left tries to use us for whatever purpose they have. But the work that we have to do here, you just can't do in the Middle East because they can't build institutions and they can't reform and fight the theocrats and the dictators and all these things that we have to modernize just can't be done in the Middle East because the half-life is so short. Mm. The, the radicals, be it the Shia or the Sunni radicals, the Muslim Brotherhood or the Khomeinists of Iran are going to savage everything and prevent real reform from happening. So going back to your parents, were they married in Syria? Yes, they okay. were married in Syria, escaped into Beirut for a year until they waited for the ability to come to America. Legally. How did they escape? How did they escape? They escaped. Uh, my father was uh, a graduate from medical school, so he was waiting to get accepted uh, into a medical program internship here in America, and he got accepted to one in Ohio. But even when he got here, he had to talk to his congressman about getting him political asylum in Ohio, and we waited three months. I was born a few months after they got here, so I was uh, uh, um, registered in Syria because they didn't know if they were going to have to go back. And uh, ultimately, uh, they got political asylum from their congressman in the Canton, Ohio area where I was born. Okay, now why did they seek political asylum? Because uh, my father, my grandfather was in and out of house arrest. He was, uh, uh, because of his newspaper and uh, work with free press uh, for democracy, was uh, persona non grata, in and out uh, of prison. Uh, my father also, after he graduated, refused to serve in the military. While I see America as and our military as the most moral fighting force in the world, I will tell you, the, the Middle Eastern militaries, especially the Syrian military, is one of the most evil fighting forces in the world. So he refused to fight for a corrupt fascist military. That's one of the reasons I decided I, I had to join the U.S. Navy, because I can tell you there are a lot of countries that might have constitutions that look like ours, but without our sons and daughters fighting to protect our freedoms, uh, it's a meaningless piece of paper. Wow. And, and that's one of the reasons. I grew up in Wisconsin, and I, I wanted to go to medical school, but... Uh, I also wanted to serve my country, so the Health Profession Scholarship Program gave me the freedom to do both, which is the taxpayers paid for my education, and then I served for 11 years. That's incredible. So your, your father declines to fight for his country because he realizes that this is not an environment that he wants to support. He doesn't want to support a fascist regime. And then just one genera generation later, he has a son who, who signs up to, um, to fight for America, which is incredible. So what, what does it mean when you said— um, Persona non grata. What is the implication there? Because that can just mean like, hey, you know, we don't really like you, right? Because you didn't you didn't fight for this country, um, or you're writing a newspaper that's against what we believe to be true. But it's much more severe to be a persona non grata um, in a Middle Eastern country. So I just want you to talk about that a little bit. It's an open air prison, Candice. It is a regime that one out of nine people in society uh, are part of the Mukhabarat, which is the intelligence services. Uh, whether it's Saddam Hussein's Ba'ath or Assad's Ba'ath party, it is a party that uh, takes control of every business, 
so socialism is is not even a question. All companies are owned by the government. Anyone with any means in Syria is working for the government if you have any significant income. Uh, the police, the military, the intelligence services are all basically uh, you either hand them uh, your income like the like the mafia asked for uh, or uh, you will not exist within a week. Brothers report on brothers. Uh, siblings report on others. People are tortured if they don't report what's happening. And in 2011, for the first time in 60 years, the people started to reject that and have mass demonstrations down the streets, uh, uh, children in schools. Uh, just to tell you the horror, little elementary schools, uh, Assad's military people would go into a grade school of fourth graders and ask, do your parents joke about me? Do your parents uh, criticize me? And if, this, if the fourth grader would say yes, the police would show up at the parent's house and torture his parents because kids don't lie. So this is the type of society that Syrians wanted to change. And my father embraced Americanism and, and loyalty to America immediately on stepping off the airplane when he got here because he realized Syrian nationalism was a failure, that it became a fascist, no different than German nationalism became a failure under Hitler and became an evil ideology. Syrian nationalism under Assad and his son has been an evil ideology. You told me your mother is still alive. Is that correct? Yes, she lives near us in Scottsdale. What is it like for your mother um, and, and just you, because you're obviously tethered to the reality of what your parents lived through, uh, to come to a society um, that you recognize has offered you all of these freedoms that you fought to stay here in, obviously your father applying for political asylum, you serving this country, to hear the rhetoric um, that's become mainstream today of people that live within this country um, are afforded all of these privileges to, to describe this country um, as an evil fascist uh, um, state that's living under an evil regime because I'm, I'm always I'm always floored by the ability of people who have lived through nothing to so easily use that rhetoric. I can't tell you how how painful it is. I mean, I see people like Ilhan Omar, who who supposedly uh, represents Muslims in America, uh, describe American soldiers in Somalia where I served. My co my colleagues, my military colleagues. I was off the shore of Mogadishu in '93 in Operation Restore Hope as a doctor on a ship. And we were there taking food, trying to help uh, resolve the famine there. And yet she tweets in response to Al Franken uh, two years ago saying that American military were the biggest terrorists in Somalia in the early 90s when she was only nine or 10 years old. Zahira Balu from CARE and a lot of the leftists will say that, oh, American military is similar to ISIS. I mean, that is just craziness. And it is, it is a disrespect for our military. It is a hate for the country that they live in. And I have to tell you, I, I believe it's intentional. They're so ethnocentrically focused on America and political divides, they will do and say anything to advance their leftist causes. So you see them take the side of Maduro against freedom. You see them take the side of the Khomeinis uh, against uh, those in the streets, the women in the streets that should share their ideas. They take the side of the government because it has political expediency here on the left. And, and yet on the one hand, they say sanctions kill in Iran, when in fact, every Iranian will tell you that what's making the Iranians free today is the strangulation on the power, the maximum pressure policy against the regime there, while those same leftists, those same Islamists of Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib will take the side of BDS mm. to strangulate the only free democracy in the Middle East, Israel, and say that they want sanctions against a democratic government with a, a, a moral military like the Israeli Defense Force, they'll call them evil. 
And yet Iran, they don't want to do sanctions. So it's just everything's upside down and no one holds them accountable. And you say political expediency, and I struggle with this because I wonder, do they do it for political expediency or do they actually believe what they say? I don't know, right? I'm just asking the question. Do they actually believe it, right? Or or, or, or do they just... Um, Say it Candace, because it gets them it gets them votes and it gets them retweets and it gets them I can't I can't decide here. It's it's both. And the reason I tell you it's both, I hear a lot of my colleagues uh, in the anti-jihadist movement talking about the Red Green Alliance. My grandfather in the 60s talked about the Red Green Alliance. One of the reasons my family is so pro-American is because they started being very, very anti-communist. The Soviets of the 60s and 70s destroyed Syria. Still today, Assad would be long gone had it not been for Russia and Putin and his KGB friends and others. So at the end of the day, the Red Green Alliance has existed for a long time. What is that? It's the alliance between the socialists globally, socialist communists, the far left, and the green, the Islamists, the theocrats of Khomeinis and the Brotherhood and Islamic regimes of the OIC all over the planet. That alliance works together with common enemies. So they're collectivists. The socialists are economic collectivists who want to confiscate every dollar you make. And the Islamists are religious identity collectivists who want to confiscate your personal relationship with God. So you're saying it's a natural alliance. It's a natural alliance until mm. they get ready to take power. Then it's and, not. And then they get and then they go to war, which right. is what you saw in Syria between the Islamists and the and the Arabists of Assad, which is what you saw in Iraq between Saddam Hussein and the Islamists of the Khomeinis of of the Shia extremists, etc. So until they're almost ready to take power, they work together. Right. Let me ask you something. So you are you're a proud Muslim. You're very, very proud of your faith. Absolutely. Um, and you're also unapologetically pro-Israel. Absolutely. And some people go, whoa, how does that happen? Because we see usually the narrative, especially when you're talking about the Middle East, it seems that all of the blame, they always want to blame Israel, no matter what. The strangest things, anything could happen. It could, it could not rain for three days. And it's, you know, it's cursed Israel, the Israel state, the IDF, they've, they've brought about all of this. Where does that stem from? And, and how have you been able to separate yourself from that, that narrative? And I say narrative because you've been clear that this is not the way actually the majority of, of Muslims in the West feel, but because we have people that are in power that are using their, their voice to put this narrative out there, it's become worse and it's become uglier. So the, the core of what I'm doing at the American Islamic Forum since we formed in 2003 is to speak truth to power. And the power in our community are the Islamists' establishment, those who believe that we should somehow believe in their interpretation of Islam and the, their uh, uh, their attempt to attack free speech, to attack women's rights, individual rights, ability to criticize them. So top on the list of their power structure is their anti-Semitism, their demonization of the other. And they're, as always with the, the Jewish community, end up being scapegoats. And if you look globally, the Islamists will use the Jewish uh, community to create and, and rel up and well up, if you will, anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic fervor in our community. And Israel is a constant target of that. Now, there's a term I refuse to use, which is Islamophobia, which is a term that the Islamists concocted to prevent criticism of Islam. And when in fact, yes, there might be some bigotry that exists against Muslims, and we can talk about that if you want. But the bottom line is they concocted the term Islamophobia to try to prevent criticism of Islam. And yet, they suffer from what I think the Islamists do of Israelophobia, which is... Never hear that term. Absolutely. And that's a term really that they should talk about, which is they say, oh, we love Jews, but yet we, we don't like Israel. And yet BDS is not just a movement of an opinion. BDS is actually a movement to economically destroy the entire state 
of Israel. So I will tell you, I've testified to Congress a couple times on anti-Semitism. I think uh, anti-Semitism globally uh, is driven by most of the Muslim majority governments and their ideas. And uh, ultimately, speaking truth to power, there's no doubt that I've visited Israel twice. And both times, and especially in visiting Yad Vashem, I see that they have exhibits of, of Muslims who were the righteous Muslims that defended and protected Jews during the Holocaust. I wish that was the primary narrative of Muslims during World War II, but the bottom line is that the Mufti out of Jerusalem was a Nazi collaborator. There were a lot of issues of Islamic global supremacism that worked with the enemies of Jews globally, but yet there were Muslim patriots that were pro-Western, pro-Israel, pro-Jewish that were on the side of righteousness. And I think this is the, the narrative that I don't think you can defeat political Islam without first defeating its anti-Semitism. Okay. Because it is a, as we talk about disease, it is a pathognomonic, in medicine we talk about pathognomonic signs, which is a key, clini key clinical sign. Anti-Semitism is a key clinical sign of Islamists and its intolerance. You see it and the women's movement's leaders of Linda Sarsour and uh, um, Zahra Balu and others that were kicked out because, oh, they're so anti-Semitic. How did they not note that? But isn't it in, is, is it not, and correct me if I'm wrong because I could be wrong, but I vaguely remember reading um, months ago that it's actually in Isla Islamic text, like in, in the Quran, that it's, it's, it is vaguely anti-Semitic. Is there anything about Jewish people in the Quran? Absolutely. My book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, has a whole chapter about the reinterpretation of passages that uh, if you look at the Saudi primary, the, the dominant interpretation, the most common passage I see as a Muslim 17 times a day is the opening Fatiha, the opening prayer of the Quran. We say it 17 times a day in our five prayers. The Saudi interpretation that's to the hundreds of millions of books around the world takes that and says, where we say, follow the path of God, not those who've gone astray, et cetera, et cetera. The Saudis put in parentheses, not those who've gone astray. Then they put in parentheses, they add like the Jews. Okay. And then in so chapter five, there's, there's in chapter five, a number of passages that talk about battles against Ben Akhoraiza and other Jewish tribes. So what do we do with that? We have to embrace a modern interpretation that says, you know what, that might have applied to the seventh century or a battle happening at that time in 623 CE, but it doesn't apply anymore. That if, if Muhammad was alive today, not what he would do in the sixth century or seventh, but what would he do if he were alive today? I believe in our reform movement, we talk about the fact if Muhammad was alive today, he would embrace the democratic Israel, he would embrace American ideals, and reject the Islamic State as a concept, reject jihad as a military concept. So I'm sure people, their heads are exploding, saying, oh my God, how can you do that? Granted, this is a minority opinion in our faith community. Right. I, I, you're saying rewrite the book, right? So it's like going, if you came to Christians and said, well, you gotta just do away and, and rewrite it, they would say, that's not reform. What you're actually introducing is almost a new religion. It's, it's a, a so, different- Yeah, so let me disagree with one thing, is that yes, we're, we're rewriting the interpretations but the Arabic script, we believe, I believe, as in many ways orthodox, as an orthodox Sunni Muslim, that I would not alter even a comma to it. But if it says, for example, cut the hands of those who steal, I wouldn't change that passage. Yes, the Saudis sever the hands and are draconian in their laws. But I would say sever can mean take them out of society, put them in prison. So you can do things that are metaphorical adherence to the script 
but yet not change the script and just modernize its interpretation. It says, for example, you may marry more than one wife. I've never seen, I've never known a Muslim personally married to more than one wife. Mm -hmm. So what do they do with that passage? You just say, hey, you know what? I ignore it. I'm not going to rip it out, but I'm going to say it just doesn't apply today and we don't apply it because it can't, it shouldn't be applied. But that's interesting to me because, I mean, I'm, I'm, if you're going to modernize it, if you're going to say we're not going to apply that and we don't believe in this or, or we're taking apart this or that, wouldn't you think that that would then result into just a conversion away from Muslim altogether because you don't agree with the core tenets of what, you know, the original script said? And, and you did note that it's a minority. What you're doing is a minority movement, right? And so it is it, it is reformed. Like if reformed is the right word, right? It's a, it's a total, right. total reformation, right? Um, but I just don't see – I don't know that you would – if, if it's realistic to expect that the hundreds of millions of people that are holding the text that says, you know, anti-Jewish rhetoric um, or is taking it literal and says take a bunch of wives, are they going to get behind this? Is, is that a realistic approach to to trying to combat this problem? What do you think? Well, I think if you had in 2010 said that there were going to be 20 million people in the streets of Cairo fighting their government, you would have said no way, that's impossible. They're not going to fight against a military regime, same in Syria or Iran or elsewhere, but they're doing, they're waking up. So uh, if you look at, there's some recent studies that show that it takes 10% of the population to have a significant movement to begin to change the other 90%. Mm. So I think if you look in Tunisia, for example, it really took 10% of the population to begin to finally put the governments on its heels and make the economy come to a standstill. The Tea Party movement and the conservative movement back in 2010 it really was 10% of the conservatives that went to the streets and then later it became more that said, we're going to take back. And now with the Trump movement against the establishment, mm. how many activists did it take? Most studies have shown it takes five to 10% is sort of the tipping point. And I think with reform, if we start, if you look at, yes, the, the cares of the world, Council on American Islamic Relations, the Islamic side of North America, the Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups on the Sunni side and the Khomeinist legacy groups on the Shia side, Still, to this day, they might be able to fill a hall with 50, 60,000 people, but they still basically have 50 to 100 leaders that you might be able to see on TV from day to day. If we get that same platforming as the opportunity you're giving me here today with many of the people in our Muslim reform movement, which is part of what we're trying to do in this Assembly of Future Muslim Leaders of America, once we start getting this, I think you'll see that the silent majority – will eventually wake up. Mm. Uh, if you look, uh, same thing. It's possible. Thing. I mean, you could, look at, you could look at human history and determine that. I mean, the entire battle between the, the Catholics and the Protestants was you know, started by one man in Germany, Martin Luther, who stapled his theses um, and, and said all of these things about what was wrong with the, with the Catholic Church, right? And then it launched, it spread like wildfire. It was the most pr printed uh, text at that time. And uh, suddenly you had an actual Protestant Reformation. Um, but... It didn't happen without bloodshed. And when it comes to when it comes to religion in particular, um, it always gets bloody. And that 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 has been true in terms Absolutely. in terms of world history. It didn't come without bloodshed. You know, people were were not okay to just say dismiss the church. We they had kings and queens in England that were uh, just burning them live at the stake. Right. And it, I'm so glad you brought that up because my what we're trying to do is disruption. If you look at uh, um, whether it's Trump's campaign or what's happening in the Middle East, we look at the Middle East and we say oh my gosh, we have to have it quiet down and have peace. No, I mean, if you look at the Syrian people, yes, they've been suffering through a genocide from two severe extremes of the Assad regime and ISIS. But at the bottom line, they feel alive for the first time in over 60 years of tyranny because they're beginning to stand for what they believe in. Mm -hmm. Yes, they've lost the civil war. The Iranians 
are losing, but yet now they're on the verge of defeating the Khomeinis for the first time, thanks to Trump's policies and the Trump administration and Pompeo's policies, for the first time in, in decades, there's been large changes happening. So, you know, I will tell you that what you're saying, if we're going to have change, I think it has to start in America. And we need to hold Muslims accountable with a tough love to not just sort of use them as potted plants of the identity group that, oh, what does the Muslim think? So let's get him up and, and, and sort of say, oh, well, we protect you. We don't hurt you here in America, do we? And, and ignore the fact that they have opportunities to reinterpret texts that they just can't do in the Middle East and that they should be able to platform here in America and begin to spread those ideas and challenge the thinking. Let me tell you one anecdote. In my mosque in Scottsdale, in 2014, we were at the holiday prayer for Ramadan. And the imam stood up and started to talk about how we have enemies in our own community, Islamophobes and bigots that call themselves Muslims that speak against us on Fox News. And, you know, there's a doctor that does so. And my family's with me at this sermon with a thousand people from our community in this. And he's sort of going off, didn't say my name, but took me on at the mosque. And, you know, afterwards I was recording the sermon. We posted it and we said, this is what happens. And he was upset because it was in July 2014 when Hamas was sending in rockets. And I was doing a lot of media saying that Hamas are the warmongers, Hamas are the terrorists, and Israel has to defend itself. So he was very upset as a defender of Palestinian rights. So, you know, I think it shows when you push back and you expose what they do inside our mosques, mm. yes, many people thank the imam for speaking out against this enemy within us, Zudi Jasser, but also many, many others came up to me and said, thank you for doing the work you're doing. I'm glad we have a voice. I'm just glad it's not me. <laughs> right. I'm just glad it's not me. Um, so let me ask you a question about jihad. Um, how how serious of a problem is it? What What is the natural course for somebody who just turns into a jihadist over their lifetime? Like, what, what is the what is the upbringing? How does how has this become such a, a threat? So, you know, I'll tell you, when I grew up in Wisconsin, there were three other Muslim families and I my, my family built a small mosque, the first one in northeastern Wisconsin. And I learned my scripture, but I didn't really understand what political Islam was until I went to the University of Wisconsin and met some of the Muslim Student Association kids and realized, oh, my God, this is a political movement. And I was talking to my mom and dad and like, what, what, I thought Islam was a personal faith with God. What are they talking about? All this anti-Israel, anti-Semitic stuff and Muslim Brotherhood ideas. And slowly I quickly began to avidly read about Hassan al-Banna and the Muslim Brotherhood, etc. And then I realized that intertwined to our entire faith identity is the concept of an Islamic state. And with an Islamic state comes an Islamic military. So I realized that in undergrad, I said, oh, my God, I would never want to serve in an Islamic military. I want to serve in the American military. The only thing I would die for is our constitution, is our government, is the U.S. government. I would never want to die for Islam. That's God's faith. And I believe in it. But he doesn't want me to give my life for my faith. Yes, I want government under God, but not under Islam or under Christianity. I want it under a constitution under God. So jihad is you will never defeat jihad. Yes, we've defeated ISIS. We've defeated Al-Qaeda, but it'll keep coming back up until Muslims defeat the Islamic State mm. because the Islamic State is the oxygen for jihad. Let's look at Erdogan. Erdogan in Turkey. Mm -hmm. Turkey is supposedly a democracy. It's part of NATO. 
I think that should end. I think they have no business being in NATO with Erdogan and his Islamists running that government. But to tell me that when, when, the, when the Turkish military just a few months ago went into Syria, they were posting video of how they went on jihad into Syria, the Turkish military. This wasn't happening 20, 30 years ago under the previous president of Turkey. But now with the Islamists, the Muslim Brotherhood of Turkey, they fight wars based on not their state nationalism, but based on global ascendancy of Islamic dominance, of Islamic supremacism. So yes, there's a lot of ideas and discussions of jihad in the Quran, a lot of discussion of jihad in the history of the prophet and what we have to do. But I also have friends, close friends whose first name is jihad. Uh, that doesn't mean that their mom wanted to name them holy war. It, it, is a, it is a word that's used in very many different areas in Islam and, and in the Arabic community. So what we have to do is say, you know what? Once the Islamic state is dead, just as Jefferson ended the Christian state, right? If the West can go from singing onward Christian soldiers during the Crusades and now have the only area of the world with democracies, which is an area that created governments that have an establishment clause, we as Muslims, I think, are in that same era. We still have not defeated that. We are 1,440 years old. We still are the sort of in the 15th, 16th century of our faith. And we have to defeat this concept of onward Muslim soldiers. So we might have defeated ISIS, but you're not going to defeat jihad militarily. It has to be done from within. And the idea of wanting to fight for an Islamic state has to end. There is the uh, um, Fort Hood, for example, with Nidal Hassan. He didn't, he wore an army uniform. His bio looked frighteningly like mine. And yet, he didn't want to die for America. He wanted to die for Islam and for jihad. Mm. And that's how he defeat jihad is by finding Muslims that can be leaders that want to die for America and want to defeat the concept of the Islamic State and its militaries. Right. And you brought up Turkey, and that's interesting because I, I, I sometimes question, do you think that America um, has some questionable allegiances that are maybe um, making the problem worse? And a lot of people will question that. What do you think about America's relationship with Saudi Arabia? What do you think about America's relationship uh, with Turkey? And I'm a bit, I, I, I remain a bit agnostic on it because sometimes you do have to understand the position of a leader where you do have to have allies. We have to work together, obviously, even if people have different perspectives than us, you can't force it upon the entire world. Um, do you think that there's, that there, it's difficult to reconcile that? Very. It's a hard, it's a hard um, question. <laughs> very. The, the way to do it is to, first of all, President Trump's administration was handed an utter unmitigated disaster of Iranophilia in which everything we were doing was at the altar of the nuclear deal and we just sort of we, – we approached everything at that compromise. So we abandoned the Saudis. We abandoned Israel. We abandoned all the 20th century relationships. And then we put a billion dollars on a plane and sent it to Iran. Exactly. And ultimately handed them $150 billion. But you're right. Cash pallets Cash. was a billion. Mm -hmm. So President Trump had to recalibrate us back to the stability. And I use that word stability because uh, uh, Condoleezza Rice said it best in 2005 in Cairo. She said, for too long in the Middle East and our alliances – we have compromised our principles of democracy for security and gotten neither. We've gotten neither security nor democracy because we're allying with the devil. But yet in the short term, so, so yes, as a diplomat, this policy wouldn't work. As a diplomat, you have to have short-term alliances. 
But should we be sitting at the table with terrorists like the Taliban and signing agreements? Absolutely not. The United States does not negotiate with terrorists. We should not give them platforms. Should we pull our troops out of Afghanistan? Absolutely. 18 years, I've shifted my position in the last four or five years on this, but I think failure is failure and we have to admit it. We can't shine, you know what, in, in Afghanistan. And the bottom line is, is we have to leave there. It's, it's too tribal. It's too chaotic. Uh, it is not the role of our sons and daughters to to build nations. They have to build their own. Well, they, they have to want to be built up. Exactly. And so an expression of, thir- of, of first world solutions to third world problems never really works. Exactly. And so what do we do with the allies like Saudi Arabia that live in a society that doesn't share any of our values, but yet we have to pretend to love? I think we have to approach our foreign policy not as a binary equation, which is either we love them and hug them and take pictures holding the world with them and then let them form. I mean, to form a counterterrorism center in Riyadh is like forming a anti-cocaine center in Colombia. It just doesn't make any sense. But I get it. I understand I understand why we're doing it. But to say that the, the Saudis are making a lot of progress, they have but MBS is a is, is sort of a mafia leader, and he's doing it uh, uh, in a corrupt, immoral, militant kind of way. But the bottom line is, is he's put the Muslim Brotherhood with their same language on their heels. So I get it in the short term, but we have our own values, which is why families like mine came to America. And I served in the military with many people that came from tyrannies, be it Vietnam, China, uh, Russia, that are serving in our military that say, you know what? They understand the diplomatic alliances, but at the end of the day, right, the, Saudi, the Saudis had two soldiers that committed an act of terror just a few months ago. They didn't get the memo from the Saudis that jihad is against this country but not against the United States. Mm-hmm. So that's what happens when you don't reform. Yeah, MBS might be reforming some things, but he's not really reforming the core ideas until the imams at the mosques in Mecca and Jeddah are starting to talk about the equality of women, changing rules by letting them drive, changing rules by letting them sit on a council in a little puny town in southeastern Saudi Arabia doesn't change anything other than form window dressing to let the establishment in America feel better. So I think ultimately we have to have a long-term plan, which is to work with reformers, to work on the ground, because I can tell you, if you look at what's happened in 2011, the, the government's days are numbered, be it the Iranian regime, Saudi Arabia or whatever. I understand President Trump's recalibration to sort of the Game of Thrones that we had in the 20th century, but the Game of Thrones concept has to end. We have to either be with the people or with their oppressors. And I don't think we're with their oppressors. I just think we sort of have a very short-term approach to sort of a Game of Thrones. The enemy of our enemies, our friend, mm-hmm. and sort of the, you know, Uh, We don't want al-Qaeda or ISIS to take over Saudi Arabia, so we help the royal family. That sort of – I will tell you, most times we learn that chaos, disruption actually helps clean out systems, helps bring up ultimate uh, treatment of a chronic disease which is political Islam. Right. And, and, and talking about just the, the imams overall and even that experience that you had where um, you're, at, you're at mosque and they're talking about you and saying that you're against them. Um, is the general perspective of these leaders, is their allegiance, the ones that are in America, is their allegiance to uh, our country or would you say their allegiance is to something to the Islamic State? 
overall, I mean, you know, I know this is not, there's always going to be exceptions to every rule. Well, in, in my book, um, I talk about how what turned me on to this battle against political Islam was when I was in my Navy uniform in 1995 and Siraj Wahaj, who was an imam out of Brooklyn and still uh, on the board of uh, advisory board of many of the Islamist organizations, still pals around with Linda Sarsour, Ilhan Omar, raises money for major Muslim organizations. In 1995, he held up the Quran and said, are you against abortion? If you're against abortion, you should be against the baby killer in the White House. And the way we fix the evil in this country is by changing the Constitution and putting in the Quran as the Constitution. Because we as good Muslims, and then he goes on to say, I got lightheaded. And I talk in my book about how what I did, I went to the podium where they gave us opportunities to talk about what we had at this bazaar with 40,000 Muslims there. And in my uniform, I said, listen, I'm on leave. What you guys just did was sedition. And you're free to disagree with policy, but your position of being against the Constitution in general is not only abhorrent and, and I will fight with every breath in my body, but you should be ashamed of yourself and this is sedition. Mm. So that was in 95. This guy is still going around talking about how America is evil and, and all of these ideas which are un-American and anti-American. Right. So at their core, the Islamic leadership, not all of them, but the vast majority of them do not believe in American systems and Western systems. They don't believe in our constitution. They don't tell their kids to want to serve, or if they do, it's more as an insurgency. Right. And, and when they do believe in this system, Candace, what they do is tell them, okay, we accept the laws as a minority. And then they go to Egypt and tell the majority there, you should set up an Islamic system, which is majoritocracy. So in essence, they're saying, well, as a minority, we're not anarchists. We'll accept the laws of the land. But when we're a majority, we'll flip it and take over. That's right. And I think that's kind of what uh, has me a bit fearful because, you know, I pay attention to that. And it does seem to be um, that they, they they're – ultimate ultimate goal is insurgency, like to inspire people to say we, that there needs to be this sort of uprising. Um, and, you know, Ayan Hirsi Ali wrote an incredible piece in the Washington, um, not, the, not the Washington Post, it was um, Wall the Street Wall Street Journal. Journal. Yeah, years ago when she talked about an issue that hit home for me because I saw a very strange uh, thing happening. I'm not calling it an epidemic, but um, uh, there were just a lot of black people that were converting to Islam. And that's very, very uh, atypical. Black people are naturally Christian and black Americans are, are Christian. Um, so I started looking at this issue and I was speaking to uh, my Uber driver at the time when I was living in Philadelphia and I was going, why are there so many black Muslims here? This is totally bizarre. And he looked at me and said, oh yeah, I was Muslim uh, too. And I was like, what do you mean you were Muslim? He was like, oh, I were converted back to Christianity. And I said, what made you convert to Islam? And he said, I served time in prison. And the imams go there um, and and they basically, because you're in this horribly vulnerable place, you know, you're a young kid, you did something stupid, you're going to be in prison, you're scared. There's a Muslim brotherhood that's being institutionalized in the prison system. And uh, a majority of the black people that are signing up and saying, OK, I'm going to convert, I'm going to convert to Islam are not converting on the basis of their principles. They're, com they're converting situationally of like, I have these people around me that are going to protect me. So I'm going to be, uh, you know, a, a Muslim right now. And majority of them actually don't convert back. Um, so they, they get out of prison um, and now they are converted to the Muslim Brotherhood. They know very little. He said he hadn't even read the Quran or anything, right? Um, so that sort of institutionalization of, um, I would say, bad faith, um, I guess you would say, would you, I don't want to say bad faith Muslims, but do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, what is a better way for me to say that? Uh, like, um, 
Well, sort of just uh, they're they're just sort of it's almost like they feel like they're joining a gang rather than a religion. It's a gang, right? It's and a then gang when they mentality. come out and, and I'll the gang tell you, mentality, the anti-Semitism that you're seeing pop up in in um, like New York or Philadelphia, they're always in inner cities that are located very close to prisons. I've noticed that. And, and no one's been talking about that. And I said, people need to go back and look because Ion's piece was entitled like, you know, the jihadism in, in prison. Mm -hmm. Like she literally, and she spelled it out about how it was, and this was years ago and so, no one paid attention to it. And now we're sort of seeing this, the seeds harvest now, I think a bit. And I've written about this uh, seven, eight years ago in Counterterrorist Magazine about w what is the prison problem for the Muslim population? Why do cells actually form in prison? And then we saw in New York a couple cases and others, they leave prison and then become a cell. Mm -hmm. uh, why are they being radicalized there? Well, you have this clinic of radicalization and how it happens, which is related to the imams. Yeah. The imams in the prisons. And people say, well, Zudi, who would you have as imams? I'm like... Our reform movement is not ready to have imams populate the prisons. You right. need to just stop having all of these imams. They need to be vetted because if you listen to some of the sermons undercover that have been taped and, and released, you will hear them calling for jihad. You'll mm -hmm. hear them calling for collectivist militancy. And this is not a peaceful sort of spiritual journey the prisoners are making to God. Uh, many of them join the guys that it's what we're going to give them faith and we're going to restore them and they're going to be better people. When in reality, uh, they're converting people exactly to and radical forms of uh, ra radical Islam. And the outreach, the folks that the prison, the Bureau of Prisons reaches out to reach out to um, in many of these states is just the wrong communities. And that should sort of tell Americans why. You know, the most common question I get is, well, what, you know, this is a Muslim problem. Yes, it needs a Muslim solution, but why should I care? There's only four million Muslims in America. I'll say, listen, you've got people that are going hook, line and sinker into jihadi syndrome, jihadi cool in prison and online and elsewhere. And uh, right now, look at uh, the hysteria happening with a virus, right, which is the left's hysteria on the virus. And yet, what happens with terror? They don't want. They want to ignore it. And the funny. bottom line More is, people is have that, died from. A, <laughs> yeah. And yet, that's a viral. That's, that's a viral pathogenic type yeah. thing that spreads into minds. And yet, they ignore it when it incubates in prisons. Mm. They ignore it when it incubates in mosques. They ignore it when it incubates in universities. So, at what point are they going to wake up to the fact that a we're missing an opportunity in the laboratory of freedom? to operationalize some mechanisms of figuring out how to counter radicalization. The prisons will be a great place to put into operation reform movement ideas mm. to see can you have Muslims in a prison become more moderate, more spiritual, and actually become ambassadors for change, almost like you would rehab drug addicts and others. And yet we're seeing, look in London, the last act committed on London Bridge was a prisoner wearing a tag who was going to teach counter-radicalism. Right. And as he's going to teach, he killed two of his colleagues with a knife because he wasn't de-radicalized. He was radicalized pretending to be People, and people are afraid to talk about it. And I mean, if when 83% of all converts in prison are converting to Islam, and, and I'm telling you what really woke me up to it was the black community. I'm deeply faithful Christian community um, to be converting at those rates. And it made me just interested to take a look at that. And then that's when I discovered Ayan Hirsi Ali's um, article. And I just said, wow, no one's talking about this. And people don't want to talk about it because it's, it's, it's operating under the guise of giving people of religious freedom, right? Of giving people structure, of giving people something to look forward to. And it's something that's much uglier 
are much more intense and things that, things that we are now seeing in society and going, whoa, how did we get here? How is this happening? And, and it's will, like because you let it happen. And I will tell you one of the other obstacles in the African-American community is Louis Farrakhan, mm. is that his nation of Islam, this guy is a rabid bigot, a rabid fascist anti-Semite who spews some of the most hateful vitriol, and yet Twitter, Facebook, platform his hate will not remove him from those platforms, and yet his ideas are separatist. By definition, Nation of Islam is a separatist movement, and yet you see the relationships he has with the uh, liberation theology folks and others of uh, uh, um, you know, in, in the non-Muslim community, and you find that that synergy creates an obstacle that's almost impossible to break through for those of us who want to reform. Now, there are some reformers that we're working with uh, um, that in the African-American community and Quilliam Foundation in Washington, uh, um, Mohammed Rahim is working with us closely. So there are folks beginning to work in reform and our reform movement against that. Right. Yeah, it's something that I'm definitely interested in, you know, because obviously I'm always talking about black America and all of the ways that we need to reform um, because we tend to get used by various different groups to promote their causes. Um, and because it's easier if, if they can if they can transform horrible ideology and give it to the black community, because black community are, is always considered the number one victim in American society, people pay less attention to it. Right. And that's a danger. And that's not just with like radical Islam in the prisons. It's any bad idea if we can get the black community to accept it first. Right. Uh, then it'll it'll be able to um, operate under the radar for a long time before people realize how bad and how dangerous it's getting. Um, I'll wrap this by saying I think you do amazing work. Um, you're obviously brilliant. Um, I think you have <laughs> an uphill climb ahead of you, um, and it starts with you know trying to get people to say throughout the textbook is is, is going to be hard, or not throughout the textbook, but ignore things yeah. in the textbook versus if you were just like this is a whole new you know we're doing this from scratch and this is called you know the muslim reform uh movement and this is we're gonna have a whole new textbook i, I almost think that that would almost be easier go back and start over well th at the end of the day you know i'm a physician by by practice i i love my my patients i love my family i love my country and i do really feel candace that those values come from god come from my creator come from my faith uh, so i would not be taking on this battle if i didn't have a deep deep love and a personal relationship with God. Now, do I believe that Muslims have the only pathway to God? Absolutely not. That's part of our reform is, is doing away with this exclusivity. But for me and for millions of Muslims that are anti-jihad, that are pro-universal declaration of human rights, pro-equality, uh, we love our faith. We, we believe that Islam, yes, it means submission, but it can also mean personal submission to God and uh, belief in serving our country belief in defending everyone's right to agree, to hate our faith, to speak out against it. Uh, so uh, we have to do those things. But I will tell you that the greatest assets for America in this battle are going to be God-fearing Muslims. Mm. Because yes, I think people from outside the faith or maybe on the periphery of the faith can, can point out the problems and the illnesses. Uh, but if you're really going to treat the disease you have to do it with tough love from inside the nucleus, which is what we're trying to do. And I totally agree with you as someone that's trying to do the same thing for black America. Uh, it does have to come from within and it can't really come from the outside. Um, all right, well, America, I have failed to convert him to Christianity, but we are going to do the end of this episode as we always do, uh, two minutes. We're gonna have you look into this camera and leave a face message for the world. If your message could fall on the ears of every single person, uh, what would it be? On your market set world, I give you Dr. Zudi Jasser. So my name is Zudi Jasser, and I think for all of you that want a peaceful world, that want to defeat terrorism, that want to live among 
the one in four people in the world that are Muslim peacefully and not be afraid for your children or your children's children of the threat of radical Islam, help me defeat theocratic Islamism, political Islam. Just as the West went through the defeat of theocracy, so too can Islam go through the defeat of theocracy. If you're going to wait for Muslims to wake up on our own, it's not going to happen. If you want, if you believe that there's only a military solution, there isn't. It has to happen from within. Help join me build our American Islamic Forum for Democracy, build institutions, build uh, civil society groups that can begin to take back the, the platforms against the Ilhan Omars, the Rashida Tlaibs, and the radical Islamists that are platforming with the left against America and our way of life. We have a program that we're building called the Assembly of Future Muslim Leaders of America. Find and talk to Muslims in your community, demand more of them, and begin to work with us on Facebook, on Twitter. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser and on our website at aifdemocracy.org because together we can make America more secure so our sons and daughters don't have to fight another war in Afghanistan, Iraq, and to help keep us safe from here on. God bless. Wow, that was good. That's a wrap. Thank you guys for watching the latest episode of The Candace Owens Show. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. As many of you guys already know, PragerU is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, which means we need your help to keep all of our content free to the public. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation today. I would really appreciate your support.